0: good to be with all of you today. Looking at you online. Thank you for being with us and everybody here on the lot as well. Super exciting. And as they were sharing, I'm really pumped about the idea that we as Redemption Church will be doing church in the hub, in the pub, and online. All right. So this is going to be super rad for a lot of reasons. As I shared last week, this idea that says, you know what, we're here for the good of the city. And as we try to love the city, the city also shows some love to us. And I love this model that we're collaborating with our community to be a church. And so uh, I think this is a great opportunity all the way around to just kind of partner in those ways. And I think it shows kind of the heart and the essence of who we are as a church. And so We just keep backpacking along and figuring out what God wants us to do. And so that's going to be great. The one thing you want to know when we transition to this in October, that first Sunday of October, is the time is going to change a little bit. We're going to do 930. So we're going to move from 10 to 930. So the 930 service will be online as well as the physical uh, in the hub and in the pub. That will be 930 as well. And I'm just warning you in advance. All right. So I'm letting you know that every Sunday is like, hey, we're going to learn as we go on this one. And so we're going to do that first Sunday, and we're going to see how dense it is in the pub for the adults and teenagers and junior hires, and if it's really packed, we might even start an early service like an 8 o'clock, and then a second one at 9.30, just to accommodate everything. So again, we're working with what we got, and we're excited about what God's going to do in the process of that and how he's going to teach us. Now, with all of that said, I want to remind you it is the second Sunday of the month, and we always give our financial update because, hey, while it's fun to meet out here outside in the Pacific Northwest when it's a little drizzly and everything else, and meet in a pub and a hub and all that, we're wanting to build a building. And so, I have some happy notes here in my Bible as far as the financial for the month of August, so to give you some reference point, back actually in June, the total giving that month was $79,100, in July it was $89,000. But you all blew it out in August, and it was $115,000 for the month of August. And so you can clap for that, by the way. That's a really solid, especially for August. That's not a normal thing for August. Now, with that, too, I want to remind you, we had really great giving toward the building fund. That is being matched dollar for dollar all the way to the end of the year. So every piece of coin that goes toward the building gets matched equally up to $750,000. So it's super great to do that as well. So keep that in mind. Lots of good things happening. We're really praying hard and wanting to really focus on this next year being the year that we join with the donut shop in breaking dirt, all right? So uh, looking forward to that. It's going to be great. With all of that said, though, uh, we are in the book of Ruth for the month of September. Uh, If you have our app, there are notes in the app. And also at the end of the notes, there are questions for our small groups or any individual that wants to just kind of take advantage of those questions. That's there for you as well. But we're going through Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. It's one of those undersung stories that I think has a lot of great lessons for us. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us today. And then we're going to jump right into Ruth chapter 2. Let's go ahead and do it. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you use unsung heroes, unlikely people, to do extraordinary things through. And I think about that even with this church as we're looking at our 10-year anniversary and that we were born in adversity, born against the odds. And for 10 years, you have continued to do things and work in us and help us to be scrappy in your name. And so even as I think about the pub and the hub and online and all of this versatility, we have to leverage right now as we're waiting to see uh, how the school comes about and our building in the future. I I just thank you for the faithfulness of your people. I thank you that it's an opportunity for us to declare to our community that you matter so much we'll undergo a little bit of discomfort and in that we trust you so much we know that you have our future. And so I pray that even those lessons will be clear in the book of Ruth today and I thank you for these women, for their story, for their honesty, for their rawness at times in the context of the story and I pray that it will resonate with us human to human how we wrestle with the perplexing God sometimes. So Jesus, help us and guide us and teach us, we ask in your good name, amen. All right, so we are in Ruth chapter two, and really what we learned last week is that the book of Ruth isn't so much about the character Ruth, but rather about this woman that I titled uh, Lady Job, right? This woman named Naomi, whose name is sweet But over the course of life and circumstance and events, she says, don't call me sweet anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Call me one that has been undone by the hand of God. Like that's the way she is feeling by the end of chapter one. And I appreciate it because you think about all the things that she has been through, right? She has been a refugee taken from her home and brought into a pagan land in that space, she was poor, she was broken, and then in that, her husband dies. Then her sons marry pagan women, and then they die, and now she's left with nothing. In their culture, she was left not even really with a name or with value. She saw herself as being completely undone, completely empty, and so from that, she is wrestling deeply with God. She's looking directly at God and saying, I know you've done this to me. I know that you are standing against me. Literally in chapter one, she said, I know that the fist or the hand of God has been raised up against me and therefore I am bitter about this fact. I'm bitter about my conditions. I'm bitter in my spirit and in my attitude. I'm bitter at the idea that God claims to be this Hebrew word, hesed. And yet I don't feel the hesed of God. I don't feel the care and provision of God. I don't feel the sense of God's attentiveness except for my calamity and my brokenness. That is where we find Lady Job. And I understand. In fact, the only real refreshing thing she has in her life is her pagan Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, whose name actually means refreshing, right? It's only in Ruth that maybe she has a sense of this word, hesed, but she does not feel the hesed of God. So she's wrestling, she's frustrated, like God has just sold her a bill of goods in her mind and she doesn't understand why. Now, to understand today and our topic and how we can kind of grapple with this a little bit more, I want to take a minute, back us up, and look at that Hebrew word hesed, because it becomes incredibly important as the book progresses. It came up briefly in chapter one. It's going to come up more in chapter two, and you're going to see that that becomes the thematic undertone of the entire story. Now, this word, when we translate it, is really tough to capture in the English language. Like there are some languages that have words that are so distinct to that culture that they have almost like capitalized, like they have the copyright on the word and no other language can step in and quite get the emotion and the feel of what this is. And so English translators, they, they struggle with this word hesed and they'll say, well, it translates as kindness, which we saw last week when Naomi talks about the kindness of Ruth. Or we'll say it's about kind of commitment or it's loyalty or some versions will translate it as loving kindness, but it doesn't capture the full bandwidth. In fact, I love the way Carolyn Curtis James puts this in her small work on the book of Ruth. She says, this Hebrew word is the way God intended for human beings to live together from the very beginning the love your neighbor as yourself brand of living, an active, selfless, sacrificial, caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen nature. Hesed, she says, is a costly brand of love that involves going above and beyond what anyone dares risk or think or expect. It is the brand of love that is at work in the actions of people. See, this is that definition I want you to lock into, that true Hesed says, whatever is best for me, I'm going to forgo that for you. It is the most radical kind of love because it says, I put you before me. Your needs are coming before my needs. This is the very essence of the gospel, right? That God comes and says, I will love you and I will give myself for your need, even though you don't even fully recognize that or appreciate that or care about that, I will do that. That is Hesed in action. And so this is the thematic word of this particular little book. And this is in part why Naomi is so bitter. Because she's thinking to herself, okay, in the Exodus, in our law, in God's promises, he says he is this to us. But I don't feel it. If I was to take God to court, I think he would be found guilty of not expressing hesed to me, that's her frustration. But see, little does she know that in the contours of this book, in the margins, in the quiet little spaces, God is actually displaying Hesed. He's working below the surface, which, by the way, I want to let you know, so often in our lives, that's where God works. That's where God's Hesed is felt, in the places you don't normally see, the things you don't normally expect. And for this story here, the Hesed is in her midst, in the margins, under the surface, in a very unlikely agent, a pagan mobite girl. This is not the place you expect God to work, amidst the pagans, much less a pagan female. That's just not the way their society envisioned things. See, refreshing Ruth is the means by which God will display this hesed to soothe the bitter widow's wounds. So, if you're taking notes, it's number one in your notes: when crisis creates opportunity crisis is oftentimes the thing that God uses. Now, to start this off, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 1, which is just sort of an introductory verse, right? It sets a stage, but then the real story will begin in verse 2. But starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, now there was a wealthy and influential man, man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now, this name Boaz, we learned last week that names mean things right? So everybody's name has a kind of a theological underpinning to this particular story. And so Boaz means strength is in him. Now, here's the thing about this man whose name is strength is in him. We don't know exactly in verse one, the kind of strength that he has, right? In other words, is it good strength or is it bad strength? See, I say that because here it says he's wealthy and influential, which in the Hebrew context means he's sort of like a a wealthy military hero. That would be the way they'd understand it. But the dilemma there is, well, in what way is he wealthy and strong and heroic? In other words, is he a statesman? And everybody says, that's a guy with character? Or is he a warlord? And he's just gained influence and power through unnecessary might. See, we're not sure. And it's understandable to debate it because, again, you have to understand, this country has just gone through a decade worth of famine. And this man is on the other side of a famine and he's still wealthy. It certainly begs the question, how does a man get through a famine and on the other side is still powerful and wealthy? Is he really such a squeaky clean guy that he did it in noble ways or was there more going on? This would be a fair question to ask of the story. And so we're waiting to see exactly what we learn of Boaz. Now the story itself starts in verse 2. It says, one day, Ruth the Moabite, so again, notice they're still using this kind of derogatory term for her. All right, she said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Now, by saying one day, in many ways, it probably just means the next day, right? So chapter one, they roll into town. She says, don't call me sweet. Now I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. And then the next day rolls in and here they are. She's come back to her home. Naomi has. It's an empty home. No husband, no sons, bare cupboards. What are they going to do? What are they going to eat? How are they going to live? How is this going to transpire for them? And I got to imagine if you just put yourself in her sandals for a minute You've come home, but it is a bitter reunion, right? She is grief-stricken. There's a sense of embarrassment. You've come back empty-handed. You're depressed because, again, you've lost everything, right? And if you've ever been in that space, right, you just know you want to shut down. You don't feel like getting up the next day, getting out of bed, putting on your shoes, going to work. You don't want to do that. You just want to pull the covers over your head that you, you just didn't think life was going to shape up this way. You're in the twilight and it's the worst of the worst that you've experienced. But it's in that space that then our friend Ruth, she steps up and she steps up into something scary because again, keep the context. She's a Moabite, a pagan in a foreign land, where that land, by way of the law, has warned, don't marry a Momite woman, don't trust the Momite people, they're difficult, they're dirty, they're bad. Right? So she's now thinking, I'm going to go out into this population, I'm going to go out into this culture, and I don't know how they're going to receive me. This is going to be dangerous for her. The potential for rejection is going to be high for her. The potential for abuse from people in the fields, as we will see, will be high for her. So all of this is pressing on her. If you're a person that has ever felt insecure in a crowd that is nothing like you, you feel Ruth's maybe hesitation. What I love, though, is she made a promise back in chapter 1. She says, you know what? Where you go, I go, Naomi. What you face, I will face. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And now she's stepping into her promise to display hesed. She's like, I'm going to be loving, kind, loyal, self-giving, love my neighbor as myself kind of a person. That's what I'm going to do for you. So she's going to thrust herself into these fields of insecurity and uncertainty. There's a ton of personal risk for her. But that's, that's hesed. It says, I will accept risk for the betterment of somebody else. So then it continues and it says, Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out and gathered grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in the field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now this little section right here, uh, the subtitle of our series is Three Obscure Laws. Uh, One we learned last week a little bit, the Leverite law. Here's the second obscure law, this law of gleaning out of the book of Deuteronomy. When she goes out and does this, this is a command given by God, and it's basically the welfare system of Israel. So one of the things you have to understand about what God does when he sets up his government under himself in Israel is he creates all of these rules and systems that are social systems. And one is that God is very pro-welfare, and so he tells every landowner, when you are harvesting your property, you cannot harvest the corners, and you cannot technically harvest the edges. Those are for the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. Now, trust me, greed was a powerful agent in Israel. You see it throughout the Old Testament. These people didn't want to do these things, right? Because they're like, no, it's mine. I earned it. I've I've worked for this. Why should I have to leave this to people? But God's like, that's not how I roll. I roll in such a way that I want to see good for those who are in bad spaces. And so he commands literally a national welfare system for every landowner to exercise. And so that's what you see in play right here. And so what would happen is the men would come along and they would cut the, whatever the, the wheat or grain or barley was at the time, they would cut it down. And then the women would come behind and gather all of those stocks and they would take them off to then be kind of thrushed. And then you would get the grains from the straw and, you know, that's just the basic principle that they would use. But after the women came forth and took everything out, whatever was left on the ground or sticking up in the corners, then the poor could go and take advantage of and they could glean from those things and so that's the picture you have in this scene right here but remember this is an honor shame society so as you are a poor person going out to find the scraps in the field it's humiliating there's no way around it everybody that watches you do it says oh there's those people there's those poor saps, those ones that God is looking down on because the belief was if you were poor and hurting, it's because God had set his curse on you in some way. Or you were a foreigner and everybody knows how God feels about foreigners. That's the way they thought. So all the more they thought, this just there's those poor, sad people out there, dumpster diving for scraps, gathering their aluminum cans to get a couple of pennies, right? Like, that's the idea. Maybe you'll find a half-eaten burger. You can have that. Like, that's the spirit of this concept, Add to that that this is dangerous for people. Like, I don't think we realize that. But have you ever seen footage of like starvation in a region where there's famine and the food truck pulls up and there's just a rush? on the food truck, and they're just stripping boxes off, and it's just a madhouse of bodies. Well, imagine you've just spent 10 years in a famine. This is the first crop. This isn't food after the first crop. This is the very first food at the end of a 10-year famine. And so you've got to imagine there's going to be a lot of hungry mouths out there trying to scrape by on whatever they can get. That's a dangerous scene add to it, we actually see later in chapter 2, verses 9 and 22, there's these warnings to the men in the fields that, that basically they say to the men, don't harm Ruth. Don't bother Ruth. Don't touch Ruth. Those are not empty warnings. Those are warnings because for a woman to be by herself out in those fields risks her at many levels. That's why there's constantly the warning from the head of the property, don't mess with her, because the temptation would have been pretty rich to do that very thing. But then the third thing that makes this a little dangerous is this is a field that's owned by a rich warrior. You, again, we don't know if he's a statesman or a warlord. He's a man with power. And men with power in that period were men to be feared. So his name is strength in him. We need to find out what kind of strength he's going to wield. Well, that starts to unpack in verse 4. It says, while she was there, Boaz arrived uh, from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked the foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? See, again, you understand the essence of the culture. Whose property is this person? Right? That's just the way the world worked, right? This is why Ruth is so courageous to be doing what she's doing. But she's caught Boaz's eye. He wants to know what this is all about. So the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes to rest in the shelter. Now, I love this because Ruth is putting her action behind a promise to Naomi, right? So she's scrappy, she's determined, and she's not too proud to do the tough stuff. That's pretty cool. But the other thing I love about this is that she is a bit courageous because technically what she's doing here is kind of throwing a bit of a Hail Mary, if you will, from a certain cultural perspective because what she's actually kind of asking of the foreman to ask Boaz is I know the regular process is the men will cut things down and then the women come in behind and gather it up and then we all get the scraps. But could I maybe kind of interject in there in the middle a little bit? and and maybe get a little bit of advantage over others. Like she's really risking something. And again, remember why she's risking it. It's not for herself. She's putting herself at risk for the betterment of another person, right? There's your theme again that you want to keep in mind. And so she's asking for something bold. In fact, again, I love the way Carolyn James puts this in her work on Ruth. She says, Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law because this is all about the utilization of an Old Testament law. She says that the law looks very different from the point of view of a person who is impoverished or hurting. Her proposal presses Boaz beyond the letter of the law to fulfill its spirit. The letter of the law says, let them glean. But the spirit of the law says, feed them. See, that's a boldly different proposition one says you know what hey it's not my fault they're poor the other says it doesn't matter whose fault it is let them feed give of your own resource for the good of another it's risky it's bold it's all in for ruth as she faces this rich warrior but from that we see number two in your notes when opportunities create compassion all opportunities are an opportunity for us to display passion, compassion. So, verse 8 Boaz went over to Ruth, and he said, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with, with us while you gather the grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field that they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. See, I love this because when I was going through it this week, I thought, oh, that all of God's people would use their privilege for the good of others more than the self-satisfaction of our own interests. Like to learn the lesson of Boaz is so rich right here, right? Because what we learn is the type of strength that he has. It's a strength in himself that's giving himself away, that's giving his goods away, that literally he's just like everybody else. He's coming out of a famine. He could just as easily say, you know what, how about we wait a harvest or two or three? I want to make sure I've got good stockpiles. I've got enough in my own storage house. And then if I'm okay, I can give to the other people. I can give to the poor. He's just like, man, I'm trusting God as much as anybody else. And so go ahead. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take advantage of my field in the positive because I want to express hesed to you. That's That's our hero here. Ruth is our hero. Boaz is our hero. And ultimately, God is the hero working in these people. So we know the strength that is in him. From this, verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? she asked. I am only a foreigner. See, what she's saying is I'm an outsider and yet you've gone above and beyond with Hesed. Why? See, part of her statement is gratitude, and part of her statement is shock, but also part of it is notification. Like she's thinking to herself, uh, I don't think Boaz knows maybe who I am or what I am. I better let him know that I am one of those people. I'm one of those untouchables, one of those pagans. I'm the Moabite girl, In town, If he doesn't realize this and he learns about it, oh, uh, the wrath that may be on her, I'm sure that's exactly what she's thinking. But then Boaz says, yes, I know. But I also know everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge... May he reward you fully for what you have done. See, I love this because what he's literally saying is may the land of God's sanctuary be your sanctuary too. May you here on my land experience God's Hesed. Because God's Hesed has given me this land. And my power and my strength and all that I have. So Boaz is aware of who has given him what he has. And so he gives it away for others because he's aware. He's certain this is what God does. And so you have a wounded and weary Naomi, right? And she's wanting to know, God, where are you? Where's your hesed? Where's your care? Where's your love, your provision for my life? And what God is literally doing is saying, guess what, Naomi? I've provided it in the mobite. I've provided it in the warrior. I am looking out for you in the spaces that you don't even foresee yet because I actually care for you. But I use those around you to accomplish those goals. I use the everyday things in uncommon ways to do powerful ventures. And that's what God is doing for Naomi. I love it, right? These people are willing to bring chesed. And maybe that's the lesson a little bit. Just jumping off from what I had planned here for a second. But I was thinking about that. How maybe what this is in some ways really teaching us is that you our God's Hesed in this world too, right? As much as God shows loving kindness and care and provision, He's looking at us saying, You want to really experience the depths of what that is in your life? Go do that in the lives of others. Like strive for that. Make that your ambition to look at the world every day and say, All right, how can I be this instrument of Hesed? And from that, I experience more of the Hesed of God in my own life. Like, God wants to use this as conduits to experiencing that, not cul-de-sacs that just try to keep it for ourselves. This was always the plan. God is a giving God who calls us to give, and when we give, he gives back to us more. So in all of this, Ruth replies, I hope I continue to please you, sir. And then she says, You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. And so she's a bit floored by this, right? Because while she's not one of his workers, she's been invited to work in his field under his provision, experiencing God's hesed as she's bringing hesed to Naomi. So God's taking care of Ruth as Ruth's trying to take care of Naomi and that's the way the pattern works. So it's this really great cyclical scene here. But then it gets even more radical in verse 14. It says, at mealtime, Boaz called out to her and he said, come over here. And help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. And so she sat with the harvesters and Boaz gave her some of the roasted grain to eat and she ate all that she wanted and still had some left over. Now here's what's really nuts about this. The insider with privilege invites the outsider with liability to sit down and eat with him. And in that society, to sit, to eat, and most importantly, to dip in the same bowl says to the whole community, that warrior with privilege, he says, she is equal to all of us. I'm putting my stamp of approval on her. If you disapprove of her, you're disapproving of me because I've welcomed her to eat with me as my equal. Like a modern equivalent would be you go down to Bellevue, you see a homeless person and you take them up to the top floor to Daniel's broiler. And you sit down at that table and you have a meal with them, and you're proud to call them your friend, no matter who's looking at it and what they think. That's what Naomi and Boaz are engaged in right here. He's elevating her dignity and her value in that culture. I read this and I go, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That feels a lot like Hesed. And the Hesed continues. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time in doing it that way. Again, the letter of the law says, hey, here's the minimum you have to give. The spirit of the law says, love your neighbor and take care of them. So he gives her access to the best. He actually lightens her load on the work and he tells everybody else, hey, be cool, chill, be nice to her. that will be great. I love it because it's Hesed, and I love it because it's Jesus. Verse 17, so Ruth gathered barley all day and then she went and beat out the grain that evening and filled an entire basket and then she carried it back to town and uh, bestowed it on her mother-in-law, right? So she's doing it for another person more than for herself, Moreover, Ruth gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. So one day's worth of dumpster diving gave her a half a month's worth of salary comparatively and a leftover lunch on top of that. So 29 pounds of food and a leftover lunch. So Naomi is floored, right? She says, where did you gather all of this grain today, right? Like, where did you steal it from? That's probably the big question. Right? Nobody's this nice on the tail end of a famine, Right? Where did you get it? Where did you work? But then she says, May the Lord bless the one who has helped you. Right? I love it, right? Because again, the answer is well, who ultimately provided is God, the Hesed of God through the Hesed of others. So Ruth told her mother in law about the man whose field she had worked in. She said, The man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. So I want to go back again briefly to chapter 1. Naomi comes into town. She says, I'm bitter. Call me bitter. Life's broken. Life's sad. Life's awful. Wakes up the next day. There's no food, but I don't care. I'm too tired. I don't want to go. Ruth says, I'll go. Naomi's thinking, great. You go out there. You're probably going to get hurt. Something's going to happen that's bad. The other shoe's going to drop. The fist of God that is against me is going to become a fist against the sweet girl, Ruth. I know this is going to be bad. And then Ruth walks in the door with Blessing. Like, have you ever had those days where you're like, it can't get any worse and you're waiting for the next worst thing and then suddenly it's the opposite of the worst thing? That's your day here. She's blown away, right? It's a refreshing blessing from a refreshing daughter-in-law. And that takes us to number three, when compassion creates a new future. When compassion creates a new future. Verse 20, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing us his kindness, his Hesed, to us as well as to the dead, who is your husband. This man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, here's what I love really quick about this, and I'm going to try to wrap it up fast. Um, Naomi was clear back in chapter one, call me bitter. Do you notice what the writer refuses to do? He refuses to call her bitter. The writer keeps calling her Naomi So it's like he says, you know, I know you're hurting, but it doesn't define you. Don't let your hurt and your bitterness define you. So the writer refuses to give way to her bad spirit. He says, I know you feel bitter, but you're not actually bitter. And God is going to get you through this in ways you don't foresee. And so he does not relinquish Naomi's name to bitterness, but rather keeps pressing forward knowing that hesed is coming. The other thing in this that I love is that you begin to see a shift in Naomi and her own expression of Hesed, Because she's getting excited, not for her own life, like, oh, sweet, Boaz, a family member. He's rich, he can dig us out. That's not her thinking. Her thinking is, sweet, Boaz, a family member, that's gonna come into the third obscure law in the book of Ruth that we'll get into later in the book. But she's thinking, maybe this is a future for Ruth. She's not worrying about her own future now. She's thinking, Boaz could be good for Ruth. See, that's the beauty of Hesed. It's always looking at the other more than looking out for oneself. It's fantastic. And so that is her heart in these conditions. And so she's like, Ruth, tell me more. So verse 21, Ruth said, well, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is complete. So we're not just going to be living hand to mouth after two weeks. No, I've got a steady job here. So Naomi says, good. Do as he said, my daughter, stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields. Again, there's the danger, but you will be safe with him. It's in the fields of Boaz that God is showing his care for these women. So verse 23 says, Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then it's like, hey, why don't you stick around? So she continued working with them through the wheat harvest. In the early summer, all of this while she lived with her mother-in-law, who is Naomi. Now again, if there's anything about this that I love, it's clearly the thing I've been saying all the way through, which is this idea of Hesed and how we're called to exhibit this. This idea that we put others before ourselves. There's even the sense throughout the story that everybody is risking something for the sake of another, which is so the essence of the gospel. It's so the spirit of the kingdom. It's so the stuff of Christ, when we decide to lean out of our comforts and into a person's needs or hurt or brokenness or bitterness, that is where we have the opportunity not only to dispense love, but to sense the love of God in us dispensed in such a way that it brings good to others, blessing to others, as well as blessing to ourselves. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for just raw stories, right? Right? And I thank you that we have the opportunity and the tools to look at this story in ways that maybe uh, illuminates us to the conditions that were there and just how stressful they were and how in that, how you keep providing and showing up, but you do this through others. If Boaz would have said, no, the story ends. If Ruth would have said, I'm too scared to go out, the story ends. If Naomi would have said, I'm too bitter to recognize anything, the story ends, but everybody was going outside of their comforts, outside of their ease, outside of their borders to see you do great things through them. I pray that we will be like that too, that we will not be self-indulgent followers of you, Jesus, but rather selfless for you are selfless. We thank you. We praise you in your name. Amen.